Good morning. Some of you are probably wondering why these cups are here. Well, you're going to have to wait 20 minutes to find out. If you figure it out before then, I'll buy you a free coffee in the cafe. Some of you got that. Uh, We're going to be in Luke chapter 4. There's free coffee in the cafe. That's why they're laughing. Uh, We're going to be in Luke chapter 4. And if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 860. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you again for this day. Thank you that we could come to you and worship through music. Thank you we can come to you through worship through your word. I pray that you will speak into our hearts the things that uh, you want to say to us. You know exactly what we've walked in the door with. Whatever question, concern, uh, fear, hope, hurt. And uh, you know exactly what they are, Lord. So I pray that you would take uh, this text and these words and speak the things that uh, you want us to hear in our specific situation into our hearts and into our minds. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're continuing in our Christmas series, and this morning we're talking about the mission of the Messiah. Uh, Mission statements are everywhere. Every organization uh, seems to have one. Uh, Probably if you're a place of work, they probably have one. If you're part of some community association or organization of some sort, uh, they probably have one. Uh, Our church has one. It's out in the lobby there. Uh, on the wall uh, to know Jesus personally and to carry on his ministry is the Willingdon uh, mission statement. Uh, my wife and I have one. We uh, wrote one uh, for our wedding. Uh, it comes out of Colossians 1 verse 28, which you summarize it. And for us, it meant uh, together we proclaim him, uh, which has guided our sort of our marriage and ministry for almost 30 years. Uh, we wrote a longer one for our family in terms of how we wanted to raise our kids. Uh, mission statements or good ones take time and reflection to write. You don't just do a you know, Google search and pick the best one. Uh, you want something that is thoughtful, uh, something that you sense the Lord is, is leading you to. And uh, I know when I've written them, usually part of the process is I would try and go away, go to the mountains, go someplace where you had time to pray and to reflect and to read God's word and to See what God was sort of, in the leading of the Spirit, placing into, you know, my heart and mind. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus had a mission statement. And, uh, uh, you know, it was written, obviously, a long time ago. Uh, Mission statements are not something that Stephen Covey or Tony Robbins or some other leadership uh, speaker invented. They actually come back from, uh, from the Word of God. And, in fact, Jesus was very strategic about his mission statement. It was birthed in a 40-day prayer and fasting retreat, which is all the verses prior, Luke uh, 4, the first 13 verses, are that story. Now, we think about those verses, they're called usually in your Bible, the temptation of Christ. And that did happen. But if you look at what happened there, Jesus is commissioned uh, through his baptism, and uh, John saw, you know, he knew who the Messiah was because he saw the Holy Spirit descending on him. And then Jesus is baptized out of obedience, and uh, his father says, this is my son, whom I love, and and I'm well pleased with him. And then he gets sent out to the desert, and he's tested. But the testing is something that is shaping Jesus' 
uh, leadership. It is preparing his heart and mind. Because what Jesus is being tested with is taking a shortcut. Taking a way to trust himself and to take the instant gratification or the quick way to glory. So Satan is making him these promises. He's appealing to Jesus' ego, to his independence, to his power. He's trying to get Jesus to sort of take that shiny bauble, you know, like a Christmas tree bauble, and try and say, yeah, take the shiny thing, the quick thing, the easiest thing. Don't trust your father. Don't trust God for his plan and his mission. You can receive glory. You can receive these things that Jesus knows are coming. But you don't have to go that way. You can go this way. You can forget about the future. You can forget about the hard work. Do it the quick way. Do it the easy way. Really do it the destructive way. But Jesus came out of the desert with great clarity of heart and mind, filled with the power of the Spirit, having been uh, victorious over Satan's destructive plan. You see, Jesus' mission began when he put his full trust in God's plan. Jesus' mission began when he put his full trust in God's plan. When saying, God, whatever you have planned is better than this. The unknown with you, God, is better than the instant gratification of what is right in front of me. God, I trust you. I trust you to go your way. And really, our journey with God, regardless of where we are this morning, the place it begins for all of us is the same place as it began for Jesus, which is in trust to the Father. Rather than trying to control things our way, to have our outcomes in our timeline, it begins by trusting God's plan. Just like it began with Jesus. As you walk through the desert. So through that desert experience really was his prayer and fasting retreat, as he comes out of the desert with great clarity, with great clarity about what his mission is. So after he comes out of the desert, uh, he begins his teaching ministry throughout the Judean countryside, eventually ending up in his hometown of Nazareth, where he goes to church, the synagogue, which the scriptures tell us was, that was his practice. He regularly went to the synagogue wherever he was. A synagogue service had a uh, typical liturgy, a typical process, program. Uh, and you had to have 10 men present for that uh, service to begin. That then it was, uh, you had enough people, I guess the way they did church. You have to have 10 people to, pull, to do church. And it would begin by the congregation reciting the Shema. The Shema is Deuteronomy chapter four, 6, verses 4 to 9, which says... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Saying above everything, I want you to remember to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That was the foundation of Jesus' ministry, putting all his trust in God's plan. That was the word to the people of Israel every time they went to church, every Saturday uh, in their case. And then they're saying, 
I want you to hand this down generation to generation. I want you to hand this down and teach it to your children. In fact, some of the priests actually would, would wear uh, phylacteries which had verses written on them. Literally, uh, they took this literally. And you can still see it in Israel today. They'll be wearing them and they'll have them uh, tied around their waist. And so it's, they took it, like I say, literally so that they would have God's word literally hanging on them. But the point was, teach it, pass it on. Parent to child, grandparent to grandchildren, keep teaching it. So Jesus' missional declaration, declaration follows on the heels of this communal call to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, which is exactly what Jesus was committed to do. That's how he lived. That's how he taught. That's how he led. That's how he ministered, was out of his love for the Father. And if you read uh, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will see that repeatedly. I and my Father are one. I only do what the Father tells me. Like he's constantly reminding people of his relationship with the Father, his obedience to the Father, uh, and his teaching from the Father and his love for the Father. Like that's a constant conversation that he is putting forward. So after this would have been read, uh, there would be prayers. Uh, they, would, they would read from the Torah, from God's law. They would read from the prophets. Uh, then often there was a sermon that was then in response to what had been read. And it was probably in that place of response to what had been read that Jesus stands up now in Luke chapter 4 and speaks of Isaiah 61. So he's probably responding to Isaiah 61 having been read, except he changes a little bit. If you go to the original, there's a piece he omits from the original portion of Isaiah 61. But here's what Jesus stands up and reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this is Jesus' mission statement. Now, when the people heard it, they wouldn't know that at this point yet because they're going, oh yeah, Isaiah 61. Okay, you changed it a little bit. You didn't talk about judgment, which was in Isaiah 61. So why did you do that? But you said Isaiah 61. Okay, that's a future hope. Uh, we're all waiting for that. God's been silent for 400 years. Uh, we're waiting for that. And I'll explain where he goes to with that in a little bit. But what Jesus is declaring here in his mission statement is he's saying, this is why I have come. This is the point of my ministry, is I am the one who's going to not only point, uh, but I'm going to make freedom possible for, every, for everyone. I am the agent of freedom. I am the source of freedom. Who needs to be freed? The poor, the blind, the oppressed, the captive. So who are the poor, the blind, the oppressed, and the captive? Who are those people? Are they just the people on the margins of society? Are they the physically, the physically materially poor, the physically blind, the physically imprisoned behind bars, the, the, those oppressed by, by terrible governments? They are those things, but much more than that. See, the place, when I read this, I know the first person I need to preach to is me. Because I'm poor, I'm blind, I'm captive. And I've been oppressed by my own sin. 
See, folks, the place this starts is with us. Jesus' mission starts with each one of us. In fact, I had to come to the place where I realized how messed up I was, how self-serving I was, how arrogant, how foolish, how narcissistic, really, my life was. Now, not because on the outside of my life it looked so horrible, but I knew the condition of my heart. I knew the condition of my heart. You know, I grew up in church. I grew up religious. I didn't grow up as a Christ follower, but I grew up religious. Went to a Christian school. And uh, I always say that the difference between, the, between me and the public school kids is I knew how to lie better. <laughs> it's a skill I learned. See, because when you're in church and you're a Christian school and you have your buddies, uh, you know how to behave in each setting. So I knew what I should never say in certain settings because that would get me in trouble. I knew, I knew how to behave in every setting. I knew what was acceptable, what wasn't acceptable. So on the outside, it looked okay. But I knew the condition of my heart. I knew where I pushed back against God. I knew what I wanted control of. I knew what I wanted to participate in. I know what I didn't want anyone to find out. Because I was messed up. See, I knew no one needed Jesus more than me. But also no one needed Jesus less than me. Because we're all poor, we're all blind, we're all captive, we're all oppressed. That's the condition we come into the world, and without Jesus, that's the way we're going to leave this world. That's the reality. Now the other part of the human condition is that we tend to compare ourselves against other messed up people, except we pick someone who's always more messed up than us. And I don't pick somebody who's better than me and go and compare myself to them, unless they have something I want. Right, then it's actually called envy. That's actually what that is. I pick someone who's worse off than me and go, at least I'm not like them. I'm pretty good. It's irrelevant. Because a little bit of messed up or a lot of bit of messed up is the same. Either way, we need Christ exactly the same way. And that's why this mission statement is such good news. And that's why it's written with you in mind and with me in mind. You see, Jesus' mission brings hope to those who know how poor they really are. Jesus' mission brings hope to those who know how poor they really are. Second half of, or second part statement in verse 18 says, He, God, has anointed me, Jesus, to proclaim good news to the poor. That's an announcement and an invitation. It's good news to the materially poor. Why is it good news to the materially poor? It's good news to the materially poor because the very heart of God is generosity and the heart of God extended to the people of God is take care of the materially poor. That's part of what the church is always supposed to do and the very first church did that and you can read about in Acts chapter 2 where they were spontaneously, uh, sacrificially generous. In other words, there was no plan, there was no program, there was no government plan. It was simply people looking around saying, hey, there's need, I sold something, let's give, it, let's give away the money for those in need. Not because anyone told them to do that other than the Spirit of God. The people of God take care of people. That's what we do. So it's good news for the materially poor. But it's also even better news for the spiritually poor. Now perhaps ironically, the materially poor are often more aware of their spiritual poverty than the materially rich. Uh, that's just the human condition. But the spiritually poor 
understand and usually have greater spiritual sensitivity, greater humility, greater responsiveness to God's message of hope. And the good news, they understand the good news is hope for the spiritually poor. Hope because they can find joy in every situation regardless of their material reality. Hope because we get our eyes off of ourselves and onto Jesus. Hope because there's an awareness that God knows your name, he hears your cries, and he identifies with your story. There is no story in here today that is too difficult, too ugly, too unimportant for God to identify with and to understand. I don't care what your story is. God says, I understand. Bring it to me. And you will find hope in him. That's the reality. That's what he wants you to understand. Because he hears your cries and he identifies with your stories. But that only happens when we understand our, our spiritual poverty. And actually, I think our spiritual poverty is actually pandemic today in our society. I think we're so full of ourselves that we actually miss what God wants to say to us and is doing right before us. If you notice, we tend to blame God for every bad thing that happens in this world. We tend to take credit for every good thing that happens in this world. Right? Something great happens and you don't hear a politician or some other person getting up and saying, thank God. Something terrible thing happens and you hear many people say in the news, well, where was God? That's the reality of our human condition. And yet the other reality is that by far, by far the, the suffering of humanity is at the hands of humanity. Like just open up your, you know, the news today. What's happening around the world? Where are people being oppressed? Where are the difficult things happening? Where are people dying? Well, nine out of 10, it's because of some other human being's decision because of their selfishness and greed. And basically you have what I want and therefore I'm either going to take it from you or I'm going to prevent you from getting what I have. That's the majority of what goes on in our world today. It is said that the, uh, I think it was the Chicago Times put out a um, request, an inquiry to famous authors around the world asking them this question. What's wrong with the world today? And the famous British writer G.K. Chesterton responded simply, Dear Sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. I think it's when we realize that the answer, that the answer is I am. That is the doorway to hope. That is the doorway to new life. That is the place where Jesus' good news is good news for us. Because that's when we understand our spiritual poverty, he can speak into that. The other reality then is Jesus' mission frees captives from self-imposed prisons. Frees captives from self-imposed prisons. I have a friend who's a uh, chaplain just down the road here, down I-5, at Skagit Valley Prison. And uh, he has often said, uh, when we spend time together, he's often said, uh, if the gospel is not good news in prison, it's not good news anywhere. And of course, the reality is God, the gospel is good news in prison. Because if you open up your Bible and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and, you, you, uh, and he would sit down with prisoners and he'd read them some story and he, the question he would ask is, who does Jesus identify with in the story? Is it the rich? Is it the powerful? Is it the self-righteous? Is it uh, the religious? Right? Every story, who's Jesus identifying with? The marginalized, the hurt, the disillusioned, the distraught, the ones who are down on themselves. 
the ones who would self-describe as sinful. And as the prisoners read the story, they go, it's us. It's us. It's good news. It's good news. See, in Luke 4, verse 18, the, Jesus says, he again, being God, has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. What is liberty to the captives? That's a restatement of Isaiah chapter 58, uh, verse 6, which says, Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? So in Isaiah 58, you have this call to true fasting, to true religion. And God, through Isaiah, is telling the people, your fasting is this religious ceremony. Your fasting was supposed to break the bonds of religiosity. Your fasting was supposed to be good news for those around you and with you who are oppressed and impoverished. And it didn't do that. But now Jesus is saying, through this statement, he is telling the people, this is where liberty is going to come from. He says, this is where the prisons will be broken. This is where the captives will be set free. Because Israel failed to set free the imprisoned. Now the people listening to this would have been thinking, oh, freedom from Roman rule. We're going to be our own independent nation again. That's the freedom they're thinking about. But that's actually not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying freedom comes. It's spiritual freedom first and foremost. It's freedom from our sin. It's freedom from, again, self-imposed prisons because of our sin. Because of our selfishness, because of our independence, because of the fact that we don't think we need God, because of our self-delusion. Now, people will often say to me, well, I'm free, I can do whatever I want. And the question that I want answered is, do you have the freedom to say no? Do you have the freedom actually to not participate in something that's not good for you? Because if you can't, that thing owns you. That activity, that relationship, that drug, that drink, that website, whatever it is, if you can't actually say no, it owns you. It's your master. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, puts it this way. Since we're free in the freedom of God, can we do anything that comes to mind? Hardly. You know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that destroy freedom. Offer yourselves to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act. But offer yourself to the ways of God, and the freedom never quits. All your lives, you've let sin tell you what to do. But thank God, you've started listening to a new master, one whose commands set you free to live openly in his freedom. You see, when we find freedom from our self-imposed prisons, our eyes are opened And Jesus' mission opens our eyes so we can see reality. Because our physical world is not the real world. It's the spiritual world that's actually the real world. And you see that in the people who've come to know Christ and their eyes are open and they're free from their bondages. And you see that in the lives of the disciples, particularly how their lives do this complete turnaround that affects humanity for all of history. Because Jesus again promised in verse 18 of chapter 4, the recovering of sight to the blind. Now, when we read that, we think of the natural sight, a recovery of sight. Jesus' physical healing of blindness, which he, has, which he did then and he still does today. And that is a true thing and an important thing. But it's spiritual blindness that blinds us even more. 
We don't see what God is doing in us. We don't see what God is doing around us when we're spiritually blind. We can't see the prisons that we've participated in in willfully of our own desires. We can't see the things that own us. And often people say, I could stop any time if I wanted to. Okay, then stop. Well, tomorrow. Well, next week. Well, then I don't think you can stop. I think something owns you. Jesus says, I've come to give recovery of sight to the blind. Recovery of sight so you can see the things that own you. So, now you get to find out what these are for. Two things in our lives. We have God who's working, wants to work in us and wants to work through us. And we have our issues, our sin, our challenges. So one of these will represent God and one will represent sin. I like Tim Hortons, or rather, I like Starbucks, so that's going to be God. I think Tim Hortons is evil, so that's, just kidding, if anyone owns a Tim Hortons here. My wife likes Tim Hortons, so I like to pick on it. And she's not here, so I can do this. So if we have our issues, and, uh, and it's our issues that actually is how we look at life, is through our issues. It's like this. When we look at life through that like this, I can barely see God. I see the fringes of God. And everything I see of God is either obscured or it's through the lens of either my sin or my bitterness or my anger or my hurt or my story or something that's happened to me. And I'm stuck because that's how I see everything. When I look at God this way, I'm mad at God. I'm disappointed with God. Because everything is going through the lens of whatever consumes me, of whatever owns me, whatever my preoccupation is. Flip it the other way around. Well, I can hardly see my issues. But I now what I see, I see through God. So now it's God who is giving me perspective on whatever it is. My story, my pain, my hurt, my, my whatever. It's so simple. Not easy to do, but it's so simple. Because when I look at life through God's perspective, then what's happened to me or what I've done is simply my story, not my identity. We all have a story to tell. Every one of us. There's things that perhaps have happened to us or things we've done, things we've experienced, things that cause great pain, things we're embarrassed about, hopes that have been destroyed. We all got stuff. All God's children have issues. But we need perspective. And when Jesus comes and says, I'm going to give sight to the blind, he says, I'm going to give you perspective. I'm going to help you to see life through my lens, not through the lens of your story, not through the lens of your background, not through the lens of your shame, not through the lens of your guilt, not through the lens of your pain, not through the lens of whatever's happened to you or whatever you've done to someone else. He says, that is not how I see you, is what the Lord says. I see you as someone I came to die for, to free up, and to walk in wholeness. That is the mission that he is declaring. And when that happens, it obviously changes everything. And then Jesus frees us from oppression. 
We are freed from captivity when we understand our spiritual poverty. We are healed from our blindness and delivered from oppression when we experience life in Christ, the life Jesus promised, which is to set liberty those who are oppressed. And so much of our oppression comes from our sin. I've met people all over the world who live in horrible circumstances, and the thing that I have been, uh, that has marked their situation time and time again as Christ followers is the unbelievable joy of the Lord. And I go, how do they have that? You know, whether it's material difficulty or relational difficulty, or they're in a, in a country where if uh, someone finds out they're a Christ follower, they'll probably get thrown in prison. And I am always amazed at the incredible joy of the Lord that I run into. Uh, there's a writer who went around the world uh, trying to track what people pray. And he tracked what people pray in the West, and he tracked what people pray in the difficult parts of the world. People in the West pray for a better life. Lord, please give me fill in the blank. People in the most difficult parts of the world pray for faithfulness. They don't pray for a change in government. They don't pray for material possessions. They pray, Lord, give us the strength to be faithful and to be witnesses to the reality of your gospel. He said that's what he learned after all his travels and studying. For a year he went and studied to track that prayer. Because Jesus frees us from oppression. To set liberty those who are oppressed. Other prophets proclaim liberty was coming. You read that throughout the Old Testament. But no prophet actually had the power to make liberty happen. It was a prophetic word. It was an aspirational word. This is what God is going to do. Except for Jesus. Because not only was he the one who claimed it was coming. He's the one who made it happen. And he is a deliverer who brings deliverance into reality. How was he able to do that? In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is talking about Jesus and who's coming. And John says this. It says, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Why? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus said, the Spirit has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to announce freedom for the captives. How does he do that? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's that same spirit that he sent to us as Christ followers today because of his death and his resurrection. And he brings his spirit to us today. And it's that same way that we live in the reality that he lived because of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how that works. And through his messianic work on the cross, he defeated sin and death, which means the the power that, that opposes us, that oppresses us, is broken. Satan is defeated, slavery is ended, bondage and blindness are gone. And that is why Jesus then can stand up and say that he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. You say, well, what does that mean? A Jew would have heard the year of the Lord's favor as a statement of jubilee. What's jubilee? In the history of the people of of, uh, Israel, they were supposed to practice jubilee every 50 years. So every seven years, you were supposed to let your land rest so that the, the ground could Uh, restore instead of having a crop and God would take care of them so the crop the year before was good enough to not have a crop in the seventh year. Seven cycles of that, the 50th year, 
all the land was supposed to go back to its original owners. So you didn't have multi-generational poverty. And all Jews who were slaves were supposed to be freed so that they were no longer personally indebted uh, through slavery. But unfortunately, it actually, uh, Israel never actually practiced the year of Jubilee. So when Jesus says this to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he's saying it's Jubilee time. And what he's actually announcing is a future reality. And he's saying that the kingdom of God is hand. There's a whole new era starting through this declaration. And he's saying everything that if you were here the last few weeks and hearing Pastor Ray preach about Mary's song or Zechariah's song uh, at the birth of Christ, he's saying all those things, all those hopes, all those dreams are now becoming a reality. This is now becoming a reality. This is the dawn of a new day. God's kingdom is at hand. Now is the time of freedom and liberty. Jubilee is here through forgiveness of your sins. It sounds too good to be true, but it is true. It brings to reality when Zechariah said, praise be to the Lord because he has come to his people and redeemed them. That is the reality of Jubilee. That is what these people are listening to. And they're thinking as Jesus is talking, they're thinking, okay, this is all future hope. Okay, we know Isaiah 61. We know Isaiah 58. Jesus, we understand what you're talking about. That's really nice. You know, carpenter's son, that's really good. We appreciate that. And then he says this in verse 21. He began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the room looks at him and goes, excuse me? What are you talking about? And as their minds are spinning, thinking about what he's saying and the implications, which, he's, which means he is saying suddenly, Joseph's son, the carpenter, is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the son of God. I am the long-awaited one. I'm the one who has come. I am the answer to every prophecy that you know off by heart. I am the one who will set us free. Their blood pressure goes up. Their eyes get big. They start to vibrate. Because they're going, wait a minute. We know you. You were swinging a hammer last week. Like, excuse me? How can this be true? Either Jesus, you're an idiot. Or the wine at the wedding was too much for you. Or you should be in a mental health institute. Because we can't believe this is true. We can't believe this is reality. And yet this is exactly what happened, friends. He goes, this is now true. And they, of course, got all upset. And Jesus was miraculously moved out of that as they wanted to uh, uh, have some words, some very strong words with him. But Jesus says the spirit is upon him. And the reality of that declaration, declaration that day to give you perspective, a God perspective, on your life and on the future is Jesus' mission statement announcing the fact that God's kingdom is available to everyone. When a church or in any organization has a mission statement, leaders will ask them, because uh, usually they're on the wall somewhere, leaders will ask them, is what's written on the wall happening down the hall? In other words, is this actually being lived out? Is this actually the real thing? Or is this just something you put on a t-shirt and you pull it out at the company party or, or it's on your PR material? But is this actually reality? And in Jesus' case, the answer is overwhelmingly yes. 
It is reality. It is happening. His birth, his life, his ministry, his death and resurrection are the ultimate mission fulfillment reality. And then he handed that mission off to the church for us to declare and live out until he returns. We are to care about the oppressed, the imprisoned, the ones stuck in bondage by their choices. You know, so often we live in a world that fails to take responsibility uh, for our actions. We want to blame other people. And the invitation this morning is not to blame people for what's happened to you. It's actually to look at Jesus and look at what he's done for you. That deals with everything that's happened to you or that, what, or that you've done to others. You may have been victimized, but you're not a victim. You have a story. But God has a word for you. And it's the invitation to come home to him this Christmas. It's the invitation to new life in him because there's no story you have, no experience you've, you've been through, nothing you've done to anyone or that has been done to you that he cannot forgive, that the cross does not cover. That's the great news of Christmas. That is why Jesus came. That's what we invite you to experience today. So I'm going to invite you to stand for closing prayer. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to, uh, to pray silently, silently with me if you've never experienced or accepted Christ as your forgiver and your friend and your leader. Uh, if you would like prayer after the service, uh, you can come forward. We'll have people here to pray with you or you can go to the Welcome Center. There's people there to pray with you as well. And after I've done that prayer, I just want to pray over, over uh, the rest of you as well for God's grace. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending your son. Please come and forgive my sin. Please come and be the leader of my life. Come and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for what you've done for me. Please walk with me as my friend. And please guide me as my leader. I give my life to you. And Father, I thank you for everyone here this morning. Father, for those who are hurting in this Christmas season, I pray that your spirit would pour out your grace and your presence and your peace over them. I pray that, that we as God's people would have your eyes to see people around us who need, uh, who need help, whether that's material help as we've talked about or, that, or that's relational help, that's family help, Lord, to, to be the people of God, to be the family of God to each other. Father, I pray in this Christmas season that we will walk in the peace that your son came to give us. We will walk in the guiding presence of your Holy Spirit, and we will be your words and actions, your, your people of hope to this world, in this world that so desperately needs your hope, Father, that we would be the reality of Christmas lived out uh, to the places that you put us. So, Father, walk with us as, as we go from this place. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.